Welcome everyone. My name is Moira Shuri and I'm the Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. We're launching our new slate of events with the urgent question, how can higher education better serve society? And this discussion is in the able hands of our moderator, Jennifer Ruark from the Chronicle of Higher Education. She covers faculty and student issues and social mobility. In her Green Room interview with Zocalo, she told us that higher education remains a fascinating subject for her because it's a microcosm of our broader culture and society. Over to you, Jennifer. Thank you, Moira. I am delighted to speak today with three distinguished scholars and innovative higher education leaders about what it will take to ensure that our colleges and universities are working to benefit society. Thank you everyone for joining me here today. I uh, want to introduce our panelists. Michael Crow is the president of Arizona State University. Under his leadership, the university has opened 25 new transdisciplinary schools and has been named the most innovative university in the nation by US News and World Report every year since 2016. He is also a scholar of science and technology policy and the co-author of The Fifth Wave, The Evolution of American Higher Education. Gabrielle Starr has been the president of Pomona College since 2017. She's the college's first African-American president and its first female president. And she's known for her scholarship in the fields of English literature, neuroscience and aesthetics. She's the author of Feeling Beauty, the Neuroscience of Aesthetic Experience. She's also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and was recently named to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And Joseph Castro is the Chancellor of the California State University System. In fact, he took that position just last week. So congratulations, Chancellor. Thank you. He is also a scholar of leadership and public policy. He was president of Fresno State University before coming to the CSU system. He's a first-generation college graduate and the first Mexican-American, and I was surprised to learn the first Californian to lead the Cal State system. He was awarded the Utley Award from the Government of Mexico in 2016 for his contributions to advancing Mexican-American and Latino culture in the United States. So we have an all-star cast here today. And I'd like to begin by asking about something that it's kind of hard to stop thinking about even as I try to focus on higher education. So I'm gonna to try to connect the two. Something on everybody's mind, the deadly attack on the US Capitol last week by people who believe the false claim that Donald Trump actually won the election in November. And Gabrielle, maybe I'll ask you first because you've written for the Chronicle of Higher Education about the ways in which a college education opens our eyes to the truth. And I wonder the ways in which the, the attack is, uh, is um, a clear rejection of facts, a disdain for expertise. Is there a way in which it reflects an, a, a failure of higher education? I think that very many parts of our society have encouraged um, a truth or fact-free diet. Uh, I think that higher education probably is um, not particularly culpable in that, um, except insofar as we may have um, not done well enough in the teaching of ethics to our graduates, so that as they develop new technologies and new possibilities of communication, the purpose of communication remains um, the preservation of human sociality. Um, and our respectful engagement um, with one another. Um, I think that misinformation can be very difficult to counter, especially when it's connected to um, human, the fact that human beings prioritize facts or, or statements that they hear from 
close, people who are close to them over statements that they hear um, that are more generally broadcast. And so here we have a tension between communities of different sizes, the community that might be put, brought together online as opposed to the larger polity that is the United States of America. But I am deeply sorry for the loss of life that happened us this past week. Um, and I know that we all wish and hope for a peaceful transition and no more lives lost um, from political violence. Joseph or Michael, do you have thoughts about the ways in which uh, transforming higher education needs to address our sort of crisis of truth and expertise? Yeah, uh, Jennifer, I think I'll, I'll jump in just for a second to a very good question. And I appreciate uh, Gabby's uh, answer very much and agree with it. I think where I, what I would add to that answer, uh, which hopefully isn't a disagreement, is that uh, I'd like to say that something's happened inside academia in general. And that is that as our scientific understanding and our theories and our, our deep understanding of social complexity and uh, our deep understanding of the philosophical purposes for moving forward with our democracy and the way that it should move forward. We, the colleges and universities have done, in my view, a poor job staying connected to everyone but our students. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I mean by that is that we've done an outstanding job with those that come and can graduate and move forward and they've added much and contributed much. But I think that we're doing a poor job to stay connected. Uh, uh, and I think that you know, setting the insurrectionists uh, uh, aside who are nearly identical to the insurrectionists of the 19th century in terms of their motivations and their, and their view of the world and looking at the broader population of people that have been influenced by falsehoods and fake science and not believing in science and so forth. I do think that higher education is responsible partly for that because we have to figure out how to do a better job to teach teachers and communicators and, mess and messaging and ways in which we can uh, help our society to actually fully em embrace the complexity of the world that we presently live in. What you will have noticed uh, in, in, I think, many of the insurrectionists and the people that support the insurrectionists and the people that believed President Trump's bald-faced lies day after day after day after day uh, is that they were disconnected completely disconnected from where the world has gone. And for us in academia, we have to make sure that we don't think somehow that that means that they're not smart or that they're not capable because they are both. We just haven't figured out the language yet and we're going to have to figure that out. So I do take, I do think that we should take some responsibility for that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I work in higher education because we, develop leaders. And so in that way, I do believe that the CSU and, and other systems around the country have a key role to play um, and are part of the solution through, the, through our education. We can develop a new generation of bold and ethical leaders, to use Gabby's term, uh, who are from diverse backgrounds and who will help us to think through these uh, very important questions that we've been debating and to do so in a way that is nonviolent. I think that's, that's the other part of this. What, what happened last week is deeply disturbing and sorry, my lights, my lights go off automatically. I may do that <laughs> a few times tonight. <laughs> deeply disturbing, but I, I do believe that we are part of the solution. And I know in talking to the other presidents last night across our system, we're thinking creatively about how each of our campuses can be part of that solution going forward. And to build on Michael's point, you know, taking responsibility and, and how can we uh, better serve our students and, uh, and, and create a new generation of leaders who are gonna be more effective than, than this generation. And it sounds like you're both saying that broader access is one of the answers. To, to forge that connection with a wider polity, a wider community. Um, that's, I mean, the, the premise of this whole conversation is that higher education needs to be transformed in order to do that, right? We can't just tinker around the edges. Um, why is that? Why, why is there such a, a sort of deep and um, extensive need for change? 
And uh, Michael, do you want to start? Yeah, so I'm sorry. So, so we live in a society now of approaching 340 million people. That's probably one of the most, if not the most diverse group of humans that have ever come together to try to govern themselves in the kind of democracy that we have constructed. We have fantastic institutions like Gabby's, which are really beacons of, of uh, uh, you know, sort of America's version of Greek academies, you know, full immersions of, of, of students with uh, faculty and so forth. And we have massive publicly directed systems like uh, Joe is overseeing and somewhere in the middle is a, you know, kind of a, a public university with a public purpose like the one that uh, I'm a part of at ASU. And it is the case that all of us have to figure out how to be more deeply connected to a broader society. And that'll be different for each of our institutions but we have to figure this out because what's happened to us is that we have allowed ourselves, this will sound funny, we've allowed ourselves to revert to the British model of social class. So universities now and colleges grant social class if you're lucky enough to be admitted. That's the granting of a social class. I was admitted to highly you know, uh, exclusive college or university X or Y, therefore I have, I have made it. And then, and so, and versus I, I went to the community college where there was no admission requirements and therefore I haven't made it. Well, that's all silliness. These are different ways to learn and so forth and so on. And so what I would say is that what we have to figure out in the United States in, this, in the size of this democracy for it to be able to work successfully, how are all of our thousands of colleges and universities going to take on this notion of more deeply connecting to the broader democracy? And each of us will do that in different ways some by scaling our educational programs and some by scaling what we have to say. Uh, and so there, there, there's two different ways to do that. Uh, but it is going to be a different model. The world of the isolated, cut off, disconnected uh, academia of the past uh, really needs to be a rare thing rather than a common thing. So when you say scaling what we have to say as opposed to scaling what we offer, I'm imagining that you're talking about a small college like Pomona, which is not going to uh, try to grow to the extent that ASU has and, and offer, you know, dozens upon dozens of programs and, and educate. How, is, how many thousand students does ASU educate now? We, 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 we have many, but in Pomona's case, I, I used to be on the board of a small college like Pomona called Bowdoin College in, in Brunswick, Maine. I was a trustee of that college. And so Pomona, as one of these, uh, uh, you know, really, uh, it's, it's, it's like, in a sense, a unique learning environment. And so you allow that unique learning environment to not only be created for the students that can go there, but also so that others can see vicariously the kinds of things that are going on in this learning process. And so rather than just letting a, I'm not suggesting Pomona does this, but I'm just saying rather than just let, let a few in and there's not much visibility, you let a few in and you allow lots of visibility. Uh, to the learning process and the learning outcomes and the ideas and so forth and so on. And that model doesn't work for something, you know, that we're trying to do. I mean, we added, I think we added 10,000 more students between this year and last year. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're and, and Joe's even, you know, greater than that, working across all their campuses. So we're taking on the mission of scaling and, but the entire sector has to take on the mission of connecting. I guess that's the point that I'm talking about. And how do you do that kind of connecting and, and sort of broadcasting from a small college like Pomona, Gabby? Uh, well, this is one way, certainly. Um, but I, I would say that following on what, what Michael um, said so eloquently, part of our challenge is really integration um, of all of the different kinds of higher education that we offer. And we are so lucky as a country that we have such an extraordinary variety of kinds of institutions. Um, one of my biggest worries in COVID um, is that there'll be institutions that are really serving their students well, but who can't manage the existential threat that has been handed to many uh, of us by um, constraints around tuition, around who can have technology. Um, but if we can better integrate between uh, the different sectors uh, with community colleges and private four-year colleges, um, between large research universities and you know, the, the comprehensive schools, um, we collectively have a better chance than we do uh, on any of our own. And I think Michael's also right in that you look at what what can we provide to the broader populace? Um, education seems like such a private good that it's only for you. But you know, 
it was in the news today, again, the tragedy of Flint, Michigan and the poisoning of the water. Um, the fact that there were extraordinary scientists um, who became involved in telling that story, telling the truth of that story, getting clean water to people, which is such a fundamental human right um, without higher education and the kinds of research and teaching that we do, those there would be more children poisoned. Um, as simple as that. We wouldn't have a vaccine now. We wouldn't have good therapies. Um, we wouldn't be looking at the beginning of the end of this pandemic, um, we would have succumbed. And I think we need to tell the truth more about what it is that, that we can do and we need to tell it together. There is a lot of competition among colleges. I mean, the system is kind of built uh, to reinforce that. So how do you overcome those, uh, those forces in order to collaborate more? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think that to a certain extent, the, co I, the competition narrative is um, overwrought. And if you look back in terms of the selectivity of colleges, which is one of the things that drives this sense of scarcity, right? Um, I, my, I just can't get in. Where's my kid going to get in? Um, a lot of that was driven by the ease with which students could apply to multiple institutions with a push of a button on the common application. And that's relatively new. So some of the inflation uh, of uh, selectivity comes from the fact that you just can apply like that. Um, there, is, there are in fact enough seats in American higher education for every student who is qualified. And what we have to do is protect the ability of every kind of institution to fill those seats um, and to give the best education. And that is really my concern. We are seeing schools going under. We are not seeing schools so much oversubscribed. And Michael has done an incredible job in Arizona in expanding higher education access. There still are education deserts that we need to get to. Um, and I look at what uh, uh, Joseph is doing that's just amazing with the CSU system, breaching some of those, those walls that we desperately need to. Joseph, tell us a little bit about that. I know that uh, CSU has done an, an incredible job in raising graduation rates and closing the racial disparities between them, right? Absolutely. I think in many ways, um, we're at a place that other universities will be getting to in the coming years. And I want to take us to an even greater place of uh, social mobility and, and true equity. But we have almost a half a million students and um, you know, over half of them are Pell Grant students. And I was a Pell Grant student. It's a proxy for coming from a modest income background. We have thousands of dreamers uh, that attend our campuses. And my hope is with the Biden administration coming in that we'll have more opportunities for our dreamers to, to get Pell Grants and, and support for them so that they can go to college. Um, you know, most of our students are from California and ha over half are from community colleges. So in many ways we do, I think, model the social mobility that is needed throughout higher education. And, and I'm thinking beyond our system here because I'm thinking of the ecosystem in California uh, with the University of California, the community colleges, the private institutions. And to Gabby's point, I do think there is a place for the students that, that want access to higher education. We just need to work together to ensure that those that you know are place bound, like the ones I used to serve in the Central Valley um, that, you know, that, that they have a place to go that you can't say, well, there's this great place three hours away and that's impossible for them to get to. And then in terms of cost, it's very important that we keep a lid on costs. And I know that Michael's worked on that as well. Um, and we've only raised tuition one time in the last 10 years. And I, I'm proud of that. And I, I'm going to continue to keep our, our tuition and fees as low as possible. We're at about $7,000 uh, for, for a year of tuition and fees. So um, I'd like to try to work even more creatively with all the other institutions so that we can serve all of our students and accelerate their, their um, progress to getting their degrees as well, shorten that pathway. Because 
we still have challenges where, you know, students that come to us have a little longer road to travel. And I'm trying to figure out with my colleagues how to shrink that without diminishing quality. As the pandemic has increased uh, potential students' worries about affordability um, and also about whether they're going to get the training that they need to find a job after they graduate, um, a lot of so-called innovators uh, are pushing cafeteria style stacked credentials as opposed to, to full degrees. And apparently Americans who've been surveyed since the pandemic um, consistently have expressed a preference for that approach. Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, I'll just take a shot at that. There's nothing wrong with anyone finding some way to uh, enhance their learning, enhance their learning outcomes and their learning uh, output, you know, everything about that. What we haven't done a good job is providing to Americans because the generally the colleges and universities are too separate, they're not connected and so forth. Uh, uh, they haven't built a way in which the course that you took when you were in the army, which was an advanced algebra class is some piece of something else. And the course that you did here or there, there's been no way to connect a person's learning to build a, what we have a project called our trusted learner network project where we're building a tool that would allow uh, uh, university courses, community college courses, other kinds of courses to be amalgamated around a person and then they could project themselves. Uh, and so we, we are rethinking, you know, you know, not that we're gonna stop offering pathways to degrees, we, we're accelerating those pathways, we're accelerating the numbers of degrees, just the opposite, but that we're recognizing the broader aspects of learning. However, I will say, and this is interesting, I, I won't name the company other than they're a massive software company training uh, more than a million people at a time. And their senior executives uh, were on uh, our campus last year uh, saying that they're beginning to get pushback from individuals who are getting the technical training that they need to be software coders or artificial intelligence coders, but they're starting to ask something else other than how to code. What does it mean? Hmm. And so what they were talking to us about was well, do we have any philosophy courses or history courses or anthropology courses that we could offer to these students? Well, of course we do. And what that means then is what we have to stop doing is categorizing learning in a hierarchy and realizing that it's basically a continuum as opposed to a hierarchy. And if we can do that, we can find a way to recognize and respect all learning and start moving people in a pathway, something we call the universal learner where learning is one of their main life functions, one of the most important thing any person does, and they will have access to learning whenever they need it, however they need it across the totality of their life. And I think universities and colleges are gonna to have to figure out how to be a part of all of that. And for the most part, we haven't. I would add to that, um, Michael, that uh, there's a really interesting article, an American scientist, a little more than probably 15 years ago by Irving Biederman and, and Edward Bessel that calls human beings infovores. Um, it is one of our needs uh, to obtain knowledge. You know, we're not born with what we need and it, it takes us a long time to get it. And the old line, the technology is anything that happened since you were born. I mean, <laughs> that means the world is, you are always going to need. Um, educational support. Um, we, my grandmother um, never had the opportunity to go to college. My, on my father's side, my aunt, you know, um, had to leave uh, in the 1920s and the depression. Um, you know, there is a, I think there's part of our respect for human dignity is to continue to assert that your worth is not equivalent to your educational attainment, but we need to help your educational attainment be your own sense of worth and your ability to achieve what you want in life. Um, and that is something that it doesn't matter your political affiliation, it doesn't matter where you're from, that's a gospel that I think a lot of people can sign on to. But where we have fallen down is, you know, I look at high school graduation rates, I look at the extraordinary disparities that are being increased right now in COVID, kids that have not had any formal education since March of this last year. 
that penalty of, of a colleague, Tahir Andrade, who did work um, in Pakistan that shows that one year is actually equivalent to three years um, because it takes that long to make up the loss. So right now we are in a terrible hole and we have got to dig out of it together. Um, and what that means is that people want whatever, I want people to feed that thirst for knowledge however they can get it because that's a net good. Um, and that's, again, that's the gospel I think we gotta preach. I think I just add a couple sentences to that, Jennifer, what Gabby was just saying, just to, so one of the things that universities have got to do is stop viewing themselves and colleges in some sort of a social hierarchy where this discipline is more important than this discipline or this college is more important because it's more selective than this college. Those have then led to a devaluation of learning other than college, which has then created huge resentment. I also, I'm a first generation college student. I'm also a native of California, Joe. Uh, and so, and so uh, uh, I come from a family in which formal education was ridiculed as the pathway for losers who couldn't work. And so believe it or not, we, we have to figure out how to be respectful going both directions relative to work and learning. And I think what Gabby is talking about where we embrace all learning and connect to all learning, we've got to figure out how to do that within the colleges and the universities in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a good and respectful way is opening the doors to more underrepresented students the key to that and helping them, I mean, not just getting them in the door, but then helping them succeed. Um, is it enough, especially to gain the trust of people who think higher ed is a left-wing indoctrination mill? Yes, I, I think it's critically important that we uh, work with uh, students and families from uh, their first generation to college. I, there are so many of those in California and throughout the country that have not yet been touched by higher education. And I personally would like to, to do more of that here in California. Uh, I worry a lot about men of color um, because even as we've uh, seen more students of color come to the CSU, the number of males of color has not increased. And I do think that has something to do with how we're educating uh, our students in K through 12. And you know, my son, who's going to be 10 in a few days, he, he has the only male teacher in his whole school and the only male of color teacher in his whole school. Uh, so I, I do think that we're, we're, not, we're not where we need to be there. And I'd like to see more of our teacher education programs get more you know, diversified, especially males of color in teaching and on the faculty and so forth. And I do think that we'll be able to turn things around, but it's gonna require us to work in a deeper way. And I know Michael's doing a lot of that work and Gabby too. We, we just have to work in a more in deeper way earlier um, and, and get those kids excited about whatever career they want to pursue. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say this thing that you brought up, uh, Jennifer, you know, about the, the anti-college rhetoric, which I pick up on from a lot of people who are very confrontational with me and us. And they believe that we're, uh, you know, a mill for communists and leftists and, you know, the, the modernization of our society and, you know, all of the transformations that are going on. And what I find is that I'm, I always look at why does a person think something like that? And I give them the benefit of the doubt. And then when I give them the benefit of the doubt, most of them, not all of them, some of them are just angry people, but most of them, they're hurt. They, they, they feel that they're disconnected. And then I start talking to them about, you know, Rousseau and Descartes and all of the philosophers on which our Republic is based, who are all college educated or philosophers or Jefferson, Adams, Madison and Jay and Hamilton, who helped form the country that they so much love and often refer to all of whom were college educated. Even 250 years ago, they were college educated. And these things couldn't have come about. You know, the, the United States itself could not have emerged without people educated at this level because, but, and, and that's not meant to be an elitist statement. It's meant to be a power statement of the creativity that can emerge when you can get people educated. And so what I find that we need to do is we have to listen really, really careful while they're, why they are angry. We have to make sure that we are unbelievable bastions for free speech unbelievable bastions for free speech, not hate speech, free speech. They're not the same thing. 
And we've got to protect that and protect that and protect that. And we've got to find a way to uh, get people to understand that that's not what we're doing. You know, that, that is, that's not on our agenda. Our agenda is individual human empowerment. That's, that's our agenda. If I, if I may, I'd like to, to say, say two things. Um, the first, I'll uh, actually three things, one subdivides. When I was younger, I used to think that um, as you got better and better educated, um, things like racism would go away, we get educated away. Um, and uh, then I discovered that that's not universally true. It depends what people are not are taught, not just that they're taught. And when we look at what happened uh, on the Capitol, um, you know, we certainly saw elected members of Congress who have some uh, educations at the most. Uh, yeah, Yale law degrees and Stanford undergraduate degrees, and they they, they barely know how to they barely know how to read. You you name it. And um, that, that really worried me because we can't say, it's not just having education. It, and it is how you are taught and what. And that very presence on the Hill of some very highly educated people on both sides of the congressional aisle should be in and of itself a statement that American higher education is not merely manufacturing um, sheep who replicate left-wing ideas. Um, if you did a card check on the senators, I think you will find that all of them have higher degrees um, and all of them have been through this system that supposedly produces um, merely the same political outcome. It's just not true. And actually, Michael Sandel, the political philosopher from Harvard, wrote that piece in the New York Times uh, that got so much attention, arguing that we need more people without college degrees in government, because that, that's one reason that government doesn't understand people and that there's no evidence that um, having a college degree or being educated makes you a good leader. What do you say to that? Congress needs to needs to be the people that uh, you know uh, made up of some representation of our society, absolutely. And uh, you know, only about a third of our society has a degree from college. Most of the people that go to college never graduate. Uh, more than half have never graduated that started in college in the United States. And so those some of those folks need to be in Congress also because they need to be able to to talk about what that means and what that means in their communities and so forth. I mean, absolutely the case. Can I take the question of human respect there? Um, but I also would say that, that, again, the narrative of scarcity that has been so politically productive for almost all of my lifetime, I'm, I'm 46, um, and politics has been arguing we have lived in a world of scarcity for all of my conscious life. And that world of scarcity means that what people sometimes hear, and this goes to what Michael was saying, what he was being angry, when people say, like, like Joseph just did, we wanna make sure that Latin um, American, Latino men, African American um, men are getting the kind of education that they, they, they need. What some people are hearing is what? I don't get it. Why are they so special? And that narrative of scarcity is what we have to push back against. There's a great um, bit of research, and once again, I, I, I think research matters, um, from uh, Hua Yu, Sebastian Charing, and Peter Halpin, an educational researcher in 2016, that shows that minority teachers, having the presence of minority teachers in schools is good for every single student, not just for minority students. And it's a principle of human-centered design that if you make something work for those for whom it currently works the least, everybody, it works better for everyone. So when we work to get the poorest students graduated, when we get work to get the most disadvantaged or disenfranchised students graduated, the ease 
with which we make it work for those who need it the most makes it easier for everyone. A rising tide, all boats. I'd like to flip this a little bit because in my experience, uh, you know, just recently coming from uh, Fresno, you know, the, the leadership of that region um, are, are graduates of the university. There, there are others who are not graduates, but by and large, if I look at the leadership in education and business and government, uh, I can connect the dots to that one university and I, I believe that universities play such a powerful role or can in doing that. And, and I've seen that with my own eyes. And I just have to believe that while we have some responsibility here, we are certainly part of the solution in, uh, in developing leaders who are going to be more enlightened and who are going to take us into the future and in lots of exciting ways. So. I heard you talk about this editor. I didn't get a chance to read it, but that does disturb me because of the positive things I've seen in terms of uh, the development of leaders through higher education who've gone on to do magnificent things for the community. Yeah, I, I, Joe, I agree with that. And I, I, I agree that you know our, our job is to try to make sure that everyone that wants to move forward with their life and attain a college level education has the opportunity to do that without barrier. And right. so, and, and you're dedicated to that. All three of us are dedicated to that. I think what's happened, however, um, uh, is that, uh, you know, this idea of scarcity that Gabby's brought up a couple times, that has infected everything. Oh, well, those, those, those uh, you know, hard to get into colleges, well, they hold a number of seats for these kids or these kids or these kids, and then my kid doesn't get to go there. It may not be true. It, it, it probably isn't true. But it nonetheless is the model. And then what happens also then is, and you know this being at Cal State Fresno uh, and, and the Cal State system is that, well, the, all the kids that got straight A's, well, they went to Berkeley or to UCLA or to UC San Diego. And, and so you get these social hierarchies. And so one of the things we have messed up in higher education is that we have allowed ourselves to be socially hierarchically structured uh, uh, in a ranked system of status granting that is basically a complete and total replication of the British model. Uh, and that is deeply and negatively impacting our society. And so, and so it affects everything. And so, and so we've, got to, we've got to figure out a way to fix that, how to fix that. What sticker do you have on the bumper of your car? Yeah. You know, it's, it's... But we know that em employers will often uh, put a lot of stock in the name that's on your resume, right? Where you got your VA. How do innovators like the three of you fight against that tendency? It's, it's so weird. So uh, I was a faculty member at Iowa State University and I got a job as a faculty member at Columbia University. And I, and I sort of grew up at Columbia University and it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. All of a sudden I was infinitely quote unquote smarter than I was the day before when of course I was no different whatsoever. And it's just, it was just weird. And so uh, that has come from long-standing assignment of status to institutions that are uh, more scarce. I guess that's the better word that I would use. Uh, and that is unfortunate. That is, that we can't have that. We have to find a way to stop that. Otherwise we're gonna end up with just the same thing they have in England with Oxford and Cambridge and the 60 or so colleges at those two universities and a few kids that get in and everything else is just kind of below that. And so what we've done is we've replicated that and we have to unreplicate that. Part of it is we have to agree, and this goes back to the competition question, we have to agree to get out of the status game with each other. So one of my favorite um, bits of, of um, anthropological investigation was done by Jean Enzwinger, who looked at the history of the end of foot binding as a sign of status. Uh, and the way that worked was that a coalition of families got together and promised two things, both not to bind their daughter's feet and to marry their sons to daughters only who had unbound feet. And that pact is what stopped that practice. So what packs do we have to have among each other? I think we need to get out of that. We have so much money, an endowment. We need to get out of the, 
you know, how many of our faculty members come from which research universities? We need to get over that. We need to get over what conference we play in or why we don't. And we need to stop talking about our own status because it does nothing to actually create meritocracy. It's like the star-bellied sneeches. Dr. Seuss has it right. You get the right stamp on your stomach, but sooner or later it expires. I want to ask you one more question before I turn to questions that the audience has sent in. Um, we know that COVID has uh, made it a lot harder for some people to think about going to college. Fall enrollments dropped 22%. They drop even more than that for graduates of high poverty high schools. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, likely to be worse in the coming months. So meanwhile, also, obviously, that um, hit colleges themselves financially. Mm -hmm. If you are a college leader trying to stay afloat, make sure that your students are healthy, figure out remote learning, et cetera, how can you make the headspace and where can you find the resources to increase enrollment of low-income students and give them all the various supports that they need to succeed. Joe, do you wanna start? Sure. Well, um, I certainly do have experience with this. I, I'm, I'm happy that the CSU actually was able to increase enrollment during this time. Um, and at the campus I led in Fresno, we had a record enrollment during the pandemic. And that does show the resilience of our students and families. Um, at the same time, you know, I could feel, and I still do, I could feel the stress, the stress on them, their families, the faculty, the staff. And the longer this goes on, I think it's gonna be harder and harder from that perspective. Um, on the other hand, we've learned so much and, and I, I don't think we're gonna go back. Um, we're going to go to a new place, and I think it is going to be more accessible to them. So, um, you know, without the stress, uh, I think we're going to, you know, learn a lot from the innovation. You know, we we basically pivoted 80,000 courses uh, virtually in just a few days, and I don't think we thought we could do that, but we figured out a way to do it. And so, there, in my opinion, there are some uh, silver linings here. Um, but the, the federal funding has been extraordinarily helpful in terms of emergency grants and dollars for technology and, uh, and so forth. And um, I think that's, that's going to be critically important to continue on. But I, I'm actually seeing, um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about the, the ways in which we can be even more innovative in the future after going through this experience. Yeah, I, I think what I would add is that, you know, we're, we're not even the same institution that we were a year ago. We've seen, um, you know, more things that we need to do to help our students to be successful. We also had a very significant enrollment increase uh, and even a larger increase in students from economically challenged uh, 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 families. Uh, we, uh, I, I, just, I just adore our faculty for all that they've been able to do to adapt and adjust and, and uh, uh, stay focused on the game. And the game is to help these students' lives to move forward uh, in the middle of whatever. And so, so the fact that we just accepted a 24 seven operation, just moving forward in every possible way, adjusting this way, adjusting that way, making things happen. And what it means then is that I, I think the schools uh, that see their mission as the student's success and the mission as the community success, uh, they will embrace uh, the learnings from the pandemic and I think be better places as a, as a, as a result of that. Uh, I know we'll be a better place. We already are a better place, but we can also see that we can do things as Joe just said that we didn't realize we could do. Now we know that we can do them, uh, including uh, breaking down barriers and, and uh, working with students and working with families and working with high schools. We have 40,000 high school students attending ASU that we didn't have last semester, 40,000 in California, Arizona, and Utah. Uh, and the reason that we're doing that is that we have assets that allow these students to be able to, to go to high school and, and uh, attend. And, and so we, we wouldn't even know how to do that. Now, now we have more kids going onto a path to college and applying to Pomona and applying to Cal State and applying to ASU. 
Uh, and so it's and so now we realize we can do some things to work with K-12 in ways that we didn't realize that we could do before. And now we see that also. It's interesting. Um, there's, a, one of, there's been a split opinion amongst a lot of people who want to broaden uh, pathways to college. Um, or, and one approach, which I respect, um, has been the idea of bridge programs. It, you can spend some time pre-college bringing students um, along, getting them prepared for college. I, while I respect that model, I think that the bridge, part of what we see in what we're doing right now points to why the bridge um, is problematic because why does the bridge to college start with bringing students from somewhere to here, wherever the here is? That's not a bridge, that's a transporter. And it doesn't do much to give students the infrastructure that they need to move all the way through college. And what I've heard from my colleagues on faculty, from my colleagues who are student deans, is that this past nearly year has given them a better sense of who their students are because they see their students in their homes. Um, they see them where they study. Um, it might be their two students, you know, one's on one headset or they're sharing an iPad or I've seen students that they talk to me about their families, but I've seen their brothers pop in. I've seen the family dog, you know, I've seen, and you learn so much more about a student by being where they are rather than the student having to be where you are. And I think that we can do much more um, with better infrastructure and with different kinds of outreach to go back to Michael's point of meeting students where they are, not where we want them to be. Joe, I want to give you a chance to address that too, but uh, one of the questions from the audience is specifically about California. So I'm gonna throw that at you at the same time. Sure. Well, the viewer says, here in California, there's so much attention and effort spent on equity and access, but the starting point is always maintaining the three separate systems. Could the shortest path to equity and access be one system? How do we make college learning more interdisciplinary and collab? Well, that's a sort of a separate question, so I'll stop there. Why not, why not one system? Joe, that is a fantastic question for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I what I can say is that we've been moving toward that in California in terms of one ecosystem. Um, and the governor has supported that and the leaders of the different systems have supported that. And, and I am seeing the silos breaking down. Uh, so I do, I do believe that that's going to be possible in the near term because of the people leading the system, each system being open to that, the governor and the legislature wanting to see that and, uh, and I'm encouraged. I, I would say in the next uh, three to five years, our California higher ed and K-12 ecosystem is going to look different. It's going to be much more integrated and, um, and better for the students that we serve. Teaser, there's definitely something to come out of California on better integration. Stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. Uh, another person in the audience asks about why America lags behind other countries in social mobility. Are there things that universities in other countries are doing that the universities here are not? Well, I, I won't. I won't question the the the, the rationale that somehow we lag behind other countries in social mobility. You know, the, the country's history of the United States has been one of unbelievable social mobility across a very, very diverse population, which we're now realizing is incomplete because we haven't found a way to be as facilitative of socially, mo socially mobile uh, individuals, uh, particularly in the last 40 years, uh, as we had in the decades before that. So it's a long history of social mobility, a tremendous history of social mobility, uh, but one that has been lagging as our economy has become more mature and aged. And so not the people, but the economy itself has become aged. And so we have to go back and rethink this. And this isn't Finland and this isn't Denmark and this is not a, you know, a, a simpler place. This is a very complicated place. And what we need to do is to figure out how to have a plethora of, of institutions and a plethora of mechanisms in which people from every family background can find a way to connect. 
So one of the reasons that we started a thing called ASU Local in downtown Los Angeles was to take every asset that we have, deploy it into a community where there aren't even buildings for the college. There's no college. And so these are kids qualified to go to college, admitted to many colleges in California, but they can't go. They cannot leave their family. They can't be more than a few miles away. They have always nearby. And so what I mean by that is that we have to figure out ways to enhance social mobility by altering our behavior and altering our constructs. And that's really something that we have to figure out. We kind of peaked uh, uh, some time ago in the, in the full impact of educational driven uh, social mobility. And we need to get back to the business of enhancing that as has been the case in the country uh, in the past. I worry though, also Michael, um, I know that um, you have been quite active um, in Arizona and helping to remove some of the legal barriers that uh, especially um, uh, immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants uh, face for college attainment and, and one a significant um, court argument um, that enabled you to offer in-state tuition to um, students who had graduated from Arizona high schools. Right. But looking back, not too long ago, um, the in the Southwest, there were state legislators saying about you know people largely of of um, Mexican heritage. Um, or who were uh, indigenous peoples that they didn't need education. What were they, what were they gonna use it for? Because what they needed these people for was to do labor that did not require a college education. And those vestiges still remain. I look in my own town and you literally cross the railroad tracks. Um, First Avenue, First Street, and you have um, the, the remnants of brown lining. Um, so these- Well, well I, yeah, I wasn't suggesting that it's not there. I was just suggesting that there's been a lot of social mobility that education, not just college education. You know, we have a generally literate population now we didn't used to, things like that. So educational attainment has been a, a mobilizing force. And then we sort of ran out of gas the last, uh, the last few decades and we need to fix that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just, I just, I just didn't, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement yeah. with you, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a textured picture. There, there are some parts of our system where there's been tremendous social mobility and other parts of the system where there has not been as much. And I do think it has to do with uh, tuition and fee structure, financial aid availability, um, faculty diversity, a commitment of a university or college to serving that group of students because it, you know you have to think differently about your services if you're uh, you know at the campus I served in Fresno 60 plus percent were uh, Pell Grant students and so that's different than a lot of universities that may be five percent or ten percent I think Stanford might be ten percent so there's just it's a textured picture and I do hope that over time we'll be able to get more universities position to serve students from all different backgrounds more effectively. And then I think we'll see more social mobility across the whole system. One of the uh, viewers in the audience is asking about a different kind of mobility. Couldn't mobile technology be used more to meet students where they are and enable institutions to reach more learners everywhere, not just for small distance learning programs? We have 85,000 degree seeking students who are in our realm two uh, learning modality, which is digital immersion technology enhanced learning. And uh, it's kind of funny, we got a snarky letter from some guy that was a uh, Dean of admissions at some medical school saying, I'm not gonna admit you to my medical school because you got your degree online. And so our students and faculty prepared a video response that I should share with this group that said, oh yeah, I'm getting my biology degree online from ASU while I'm working as a helicopter medic, while I'm working as a ER nurse, while I'm working as an electronics technician's mate in the bottom of a nuclear submarine underneath the ocean protecting you 
Mr. Medical School Dean. And so what he said was that there was no way for students to learn anything about communications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, while they learned online. So what we have is we have massive ignorance, which has created a resistance to technology-enhanced learning. Technology-enhanced learning is going to have to be an essential part of learning for some people at some part in their life, particularly if they weren't able to finish college or weren't able to go to college on the schedule that colleges offer, uh, which is 18 to 22 years old or whatever. And so, so what we found is that, is that technology allows you to project the creativity of your faculty in ways that we never could have imagined. And what we're seeing are just unbelievable outcomes, unbelievable outcomes. I'm seeing, oh, sorry, Gabby. No, I'll go after you, Gabby. No, after you. Okay. I, I was just gonna say the, the same thing that um, we're seeing, um, in terms of the, the use of mobile technology in the classroom, for example, um, the studies I've seen of the work we've done in the CSU and especially in Fresno show that there was a greater level of engagement between the faculty and the students. Um, and you know, you connect that to textbook costs. And if if there's a way you can, you know, go to free textbooks or very low-cost textbooks, which we we've done through the use of mobile technology. Um, I think that's another win, um, and I, I'm particularly concerned about those students who've been on the wrong side of the divide, and some of them are in my system here, and I want to make sure over time as chancellor that we um, enhance our mobile technology here, and I, I think that we need to do that across the country in partnerships uh, with, with companies and foundations and, and others who want to see this occur. I got a lovely letter from a student today. Um, and, you know, I will say getting a lovely letter um, is such a, such a treat um, yes. and it's, uh, in this day and age. Um, but I just want to read a teensy bit of it um, to you because it goes to this, this issue of community. And the student says, um, you know, I cannot adequately convey my gratitude towards you and the admissions officers for providing me with this unparalleled educational experience. Well, my first semester was not as I imagined it. I've had some wonderful experiences. I've gotten to know all of my professors to a greater extent than I hoped, made some bona fide friends and explored such a wide breadth of knowledge. Um, I've been so impressed by the caliber of the faculty and students, especially in their willingness to engage deeply with concepts and promote a sense of community in spite of the online nature of the courses. I expected I would be wholly isolated and lost, but I was overjoyed with the welcoming, amicable attitude exuded by my professors and my fellow colleagues. I mean, your heart has to be made of stone if you don't. So you're like, oh my God. That said, you know, there is something missing, I think, you know, when we talk about the prototypical student who's participating in an online learning experience, they're not cut off from the world in the way so many of us are now. And I look at my own two kids, I've got a teenager and a preteen um, who have been their only pure in-person company now for months. And I think about especially students who have um, um, are on the autism spectrum or who have other uh, challenges around socialization that they are not in human contact outside of, of their family unit. And we've also seen that the incidence of um, child abuse and neglect that's been reported is dramatically dipped, not because we think that suddenly people aren't doing horrible things, but rather because in this isolated world, they can be hidden. And so what I would emphasize is that as we hit our new normal, for me, the truth that we need to hold on to is that being physically together does matter. Um, you know, we human beings were not meant to be all the time in these little green boxes. Um, and, uh, you know, we desperately miss 
you can get some of it. You still can be a human over the, over the electrons, but we do need that space um, to have that residential experience, that close physical community, because human beings are social creatures. Well, this has been a wonderfully wide ranging conversation. And to wrap up, I wanna ask you if you could just each of you say as, as briefly as possible, if you had a magic wand and could make uh, one change in higher ed tomorrow, uh, which of the changes that you've started to discuss tonight would you begin with? Michael? Probably, probably no more rankings based on inputs, uh, just basically assessments based on outputs. Uh, and that would have a massive change for many, many things. How about you, Joe? Well, I, the change that I put at the top of the list, and we may see it in the coming months, is, um, is dream uh, support for our dreamers. Uh, you know, the thousands and thousands of them across the country who are having trouble accessing higher education because they don't have enough financial support. And I think that change at the federal level, if I could do that tonight, that's what I would do first. I would say amen to both Michael and, and Joe. Um, I'll let their magic wands leave me with only one left. I would say make it as easy as possible for students to move from community colleges to four-year colleges and across every single state so that you can begin to maximize your educational attainment in a way that works for you. Well, thank you all so much for your insights today and thank you to our audience uh, and everybody hang in there. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer.